From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, the Conservative rebels, who were signalling that they would rebel against the government, are now signalling a compromise. Apparently, they've found one that's been drawn up with the government to avoid the rebellion over Boris Johnson's virus restrictions. About 80 Tory MPs were ready to amend legislation, so ministers couldn't impose pandemic rules without first putting them to Parliament for approval. But the signs of agreement are there from senior rebels like Steve Baker. He's been holding talks with government figures. And as a result, he now expects, quote, a satisfactory agreement. Yeah, first the internal markets bill, now this. It looks like if you do get the numbers together with this government, they're quite happy to climb down and let you have what you want. Uh, So it'll be interesting to watch that dynamic as we move ahead, despite that massive majority doesn't give you quite the freedom we were all talking about back in December of last year. Uh, meanwhile, the government today advising people in large parts of northern England, northeast England, not to mix with other households in public places. So a stricter requirement there. The health secretary, Matt Hancock, says people who do not live together won't be able to meet up in any setting. Unfortunately, the number of cases continues to rise sharply. The incident rate across the area is now over 100 cases per 100,000. We know that a large number of these infections are taking place in indoor settings outside the home. So we're now looking at another 2 million people being affected by tough restrictions. And I tell you what, Roger, when you look at the maps of the areas that are affected, it is large swathes of the country. I know we're not talking about a wholesale national lockdown, but there is a lot of the country now that is being affected by something greater than what is being put on England as a whole. Yes, it clearly is mounting. Maybe it will come to London soon. That's certainly been the suggestion. And all this, of course, has prompted a warning that the hospitality sector faces collapse in those parts of the country and perhaps elsewhere. Council bosses in Liverpool, Leeds and Manchester have written to the Health and Business Secretary saying the measures risk a huge, disproportionate economic impact. Here's Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham. If they're going to keep the curfew, they need to think of ways of making it work better. I'm not persuaded that it's a sensible move overall. I think it will lead to more social gatherings in the home and certain damage to hospitality businesses. That was Andy Burnham there, the mayor of Greater Manchester. Well, for more, let's bring in Mick Whitley. He's the Labour MP for Birkenhead, which is up near Liverpool. And Mick, your constituency is, I believe, under a local lockdown. Is, is, is that working out for you? Are those measures proving effective? 
Well, I mean, obviously, you know, we we want to we want to work with this government. Uh, to, you know, we want to succeed in, in the handling of the outbreak. You know, but you know, it, the way the situation is right now, people don't know what to do. In some parts of the country, you can be you can only be with your family, your immediate family. In other parts of the country, you can be with six uh, different families. There's no, there's no cohesive plan by this uh, by this government, and this you know closing uh, the uh, the pubs at ten o'clock at, uh, at the evening. We've seen we've seen what's happening there, where people are just congregating outside or in in, in other areas and just drinking. You know, so it's it's not dampening it down; it's making it worse, in my view. You know, we've got to get a grip of this, and and, and I don't believe the government's the, you know the shilly shallying all over the place. Uh, in in, in uh, you know, and they're not, they're not making it clear or no coherent plan uh, for the country. Well, Mick, I suppose they would say, well, in the areas which are worst affected at the moment, which I suppose perhaps is from the local circumstance, whether it's students coming in or whatever it is, they're the ones that have to have a harsher regime than the rest of the country. And some of these things are going to involve, uh, for example, getting people home quickly so that they are not congregating at the end of the evening. Uh, you could say, uh, I could say, really? I mean, you've got a situation now with, with the students, uh, you know, are self-isolating the talk of them being isolated up till Christmas. They could have, they could have done uh, some of their work from home. You know, all these students congregating together now. It's 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 making the situation worse, in my view. Now we want to we we want to work with this government, but they've got to come up with a co- coherent strategy and a proper plan. You know, this what they're doing now is just, it's like putting, you know, a plaster, you know, on a, an open wound. It's not working. Okay, so I mean, the system so far has been big national lockdown and then local lockdowns where needed. What would you do instead? Do we need another second lockdown here if people aren't complying with the rules that are being put in front of them? Well, I, I think ultimately, I think we're going to have to think about that, uh, you know, because, you know, the, the plan at the moment uh, doesn't appear to be working. You know, I mean, a couple of months ago, Boris Johnson saying we've got a well-beaten uh, track and trace uh, uh, plan. Where is it? It's not. It doesn't seem to be. It doesn't seem to, to be working. I mean, we got the we got the virus under control. Uh, you know, uh, March, April. Uh, you know, you know, early on this year. Now we're going into winter time again. People, you know, are getting the flu, the flu vaccinations and things like that. So they could be even worse to come. You know, so, so do we, we take a preventative to... measure here? Do we need to lock down earlier this time before the cold weather sets in? Before those flu numbers go up? Well, I, I think we need to look at that. I think we need to have a, a, a comprehensive plan, uh, you know, to, to flatten the hump. You know, I mean, the way it's, ra- it's, it's rising now, it's going to be, it's, it looks like it's going to be worse than what it did initially when it, uh, when it, you know, when it came out in March, you know. So Mick, I think, but... Sorry, I was just going to say, Mick, Mick give, give us a picture of what it's actually like in Birkenhead at the moment, because, you know, are, are, are the businesses, the, I suppose, the pubs, the restaurants, the, the cafes, are they managing to survive? And what are people telling you? Well, what they're telling me is, I mean, you, you, you know, the, you know, the people, uh, you know, in the hospitality industry, they're trying their best, you know, and some of the, some of the pubs that they uh, that they manage are, are small pubs, so therefore the dis- social distancing distancing doesn't make it worthwhile opening them pubs, you know, they're, they're losing money hand over foot. Some of them are going to go bankrupt, you know. Obviously, you know, uh, when the, when the chancellor come out with his, uh, you know, his uh, package early uh, early this week. You know, there's nothing there for the hospitality industry. They just left it, you know, and there's going to be massive, massive 
uh, redundancies and closures in the hospitality uh, hospitality industry. Now, like, you know, I, I really, really feel sorry for, like, my, in my own constituency, for publicans, you know, and people in the hospitality industry, because they're not getting that, they're not getting the help that they deserve, you know. And, and what about students? You mentioned them a moment ago. Was it a mistake to send them to university in the first place? I think it was. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying we, we're... I'm, I don't want to come out with saying I told you so or anything like that because we want to work, obviously, and students need to get back to university and, and, and back to the learning. But, you know, I think it might have been too early, uh, you know, to, uh, to send them back to uh, university. I think I think we could have done a lot from home, uh, you know, but, you know... And, and I understand, uh, you know, people going to university, like, the, you know, the, the first years, the, you know, the, the first year students... When they when they go to university, they, you know they like the, the you know the life, you know the bohemian life and things like that. They like the lifestyle, but it's totally different now. I mean, some of them say, "What am I doing here? Locked up in a room, you know, mm-hmm. isolating." So I think we need to look at that, um, you know. And, and as I say, you know, it's uh, it's I'm not blaming this government uh, for the you know uh, you know for for what's that, for what's happening, but I blame them for what the way it's happening and what they're doing. So, in the end, it comes down to, I suppose, you and many of your colleagues in Parliament wanting to have more control, more more ability to be able to to, to, to scrutinise what the government's doing uh, and have a view of it. Now, we know there's been a bit of a backbench Tory rebellion on this, which Labour was to some extent supporting. What do you think, I mean, do you think that needs to be pushed further? Do you think Parliament needs to have a, a lock on all this? Well, I think, yeah, well, well Keir Starmer uh, said, uh, I think it was uh, last uh, last week's uh, question, Sam, to uh, the Prime Minister, we want to help. You know, we, we, you know, we want to work with you, we want to help. But it doesn't seem to be happening, uh, you know, and uh, it, it doesn't seem to take up, uh, you know, that invitation uh, for us to, you know, get involved. And I think, we, you know, I think this affects everybody. So we, we, we all need to get involved here, right across the political divide. Uh, to try and you know flatten this one down, you know, and and make it, you know, to get back to some sort of uh, no- normality, or you know, not the new normal as you know we're working under now, you know. What about the argument then that if this legislation is intended to be emergency, intended to be enacted quickly, the government needs that flexibility to come in and do it? It's a point that Chris Clarkson, the Conservative MP, uh, made on our program yesterday. Does that not sound reasonable? Well, look, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, people thought, uh, you know, in the summertime, you know, when 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 we when we got a handle on the, uh, you know, on COVID, you know, and it was coming down, you know, and people thought, you know, you know, they'd done everything that was asked of them, you know, and then all of a sudden we got this big spike, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and people were coming, were starting to come back to work. Now it's juggling, it's juggling the economy, you know, with the, the with the disease, you know, and. Obviously, I, I understand that where people say, you know, we've got to get back to work, we've got to get the economy going again and things like that. But was it too early? And that's the, that's the point what, I, what, what, I'm, uh, what I'm making. What, you know, the point what I see is yeah. that, you know, you can't juggle the two. We've got to get a, we've got to get a handle on, on, on COVID first before we start, you know, easing up uh, yeah. back and getting back into work, you know. Mick, let me ask you about one thing I think is interesting, maybe something I don't know that you'd approve of. The government's talking now about offering free training for adults without A-levels, going in a way perhaps into an area you might think would be Labour policy. Um, I mean, trying to change the way the workforce is after COVID. Is that a good thing to do? Yeah, well, well, yeah, obviously, uh, you know, I, I, will, I will welcome anything, uh, you know, to uh, 
get young kids uh, back into, into work, you know, and training those people who haven't got, uh, you know, uh, A-levels or such, you know, so they need to get back, you know, they need to get back into work. And so, yeah, I welcome that. I welcome any, any moves uh, to get uh, the, young, the youngsters uh, back into, uh, into jobs, you know. So, yeah, I've got no problem with that. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And we start with something we mentioned briefly, Roger, with Mick, and that is new government plans for adult training. Yes, it's it's quite an interesting area that this uh, Conservative government is going to, which you might think might have a more Labour flavour. Adults without A-levels will be offered free college courses under new plans to help people train for a better job. They're going to be made available in England from April next year. Higher education loans will also be made more flexible. And trials of so-called skills boot camps are going to be expanded. Now, all this comes as number 10 seeks to tackle rising unemployment and make sure people have the skills to cope with what are major changes to the UK economy. Yeah, it's a far cry from the days of Thatcher and closing down mines and not offering any alternatives. And it harks back to, I say harks back, it was only a few months ago, but the whole levelling up agenda that we heard so much of in the last election campaign and then sort of got waylaid by, by the whole virus thing. So government on course to some extent there. And then we've got a warning from the IFS. Britain could be facing a long-term increase in the size of the state. Another quite unconservative idea, as well as substantial tax increases as a result of the pandemic. Uh, the influential research group, that's the IFS, saying that it's highly plausible that government spending could be around 45% of GDP by the middle of the decade. And we haven't seen that since the 1970s. Paul Johnson, the director of the IFS, saying that Britain is already facing really substantial tax increases in the medium term. But the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, likely, refrain, uh, likely to refrain from doing this until 2022 to avoid damaging the recovery, of course. Got to allow a little bit of space to get out of this first problem, I suppose, before well, looking at this. Well, indeed. And speaking of multiple problems, of course, we are very focused on COVID-19. But there is, of course, flu, which uh, comes around at this time of year or begins to. And the flu vaccine, apparently, running short across parts of the UK, according to the Daily Telegraph. Surging demand caused by the virus has prompted High Street Pharmacies Boots and Lloyds to suspend bookings for those aged 65 and over, while the waiting list at some GP surgeries stands at several weeks. The shortages leave swathes of the most vulnerable in the population with no immediate prospect of a flu jab, despite a government promise that they would be at the front of the queue. Mm, that does sound concerning as we head into the winter months. But then some better news on the vaccines, on the COVID, on the flu, all of that front. Tests for COVID that show on-the-spot results in 15 to 30 minutes about to be rolled out across the world. Of course, potentially saving many thousands of lives, slowing down the pandemic in poor and rich countries alike. This in today's Guardian. They look a bit like a pregnancy test, apparently. Two lines for positive and they are read by a health worker and one test has got emergency approval from the WHO, the World Health Organization. The other one expected to get it shortly. Not clear though if the UK is intending to buy these particular tests. But if you think back to those leaks around moonshot proposals that we have from the government, rapid testing 
was a big part of that. And indeed, before we get a vaccine, it's hard to imagine how we can get back to some level of normalcy without rapid and regular testing. And remember, of course, on this programme, uh, we were talking to one of the opinion pollsters who said how few people, relatively mm. speaking, were willing to take a test because they didn't trust it. Trust is at the core of an awful lot of politics right now. One of the big issues, really, that's come out in the last few years in British politics. Lack of trust in politicians was seen widely as a factor in the 2016 Brexit referendum result. It's also a rising theme in the way people react to the changing assurances from the authorities on dealing with the pandemic. Well, the John Smith Centre at Glasgow University has made a special study of all this and it published three reports on it. The centre's headed by the former leader of Labour in the Scottish Parliament, Kezia Dugdale. She joins us now. Kezia, welcome to the programme. Thanks very much for doing this for us today. Let me ask you a, a, a question I think that comes up in people's minds. Is there a crisis in trust in British politicians? No, I'm afraid there isn't a crisis in trust. And the reason for that isn't a particularly positive one. The reality is that um, trust in our politicians has always been low. It's been rubbish since the 1930s when records began. Granted, it got slightly worse after the economic crash in 2008 and a little bit worse again following Brexit. But there's no cliff edge here. What we've got, however, is a consistently low level of trust in the people that take decisions over their lives. And on the one hand, that's also quite a good thing. We don't want to be just 100% trustful of those who govern our lives. It's not a dictatorship. We're not sort of sublime citizens that are subjects and do what they're told. It's right to be sceptical about decisions and decision makers. But the problem for me, as this report evidences it, is that we are unequally sceptical. If you are young, if you're female, if you're poor, you're far more likely to distrust your politicians and the government than if you don't fit into either of those three categories. And crucially, those are the three categories most likely to be affected by the economic consequences of COVID-19. Mm. I, I, mean, I want to think about Boris Johnson or all of this, Kezia, because he's a man who is often called untrustworthy to certain degrees, given his uh, political history, yet he achieved this massive majority. So despite the fact that trust is low, is it the case that it just doesn't really seem to be an indicator or ha has he managed to buck the trend in another way? Well, the reality is that when you have low levels of trust, you often have low levels of participation in formal aspects of politics. What do I mean by that? by voting, by going out and actually casting your vote. And if you stay away, if you don't exercise your democratic right, then you condense the power amongst those who do. So that's really uh, prominent in a report that looks at, at women in particular. So women are more likely than men to sign a petition or to protest in the streets, but they're also less likely to want to stand for parliament or to vote in an election. And that's how you get that concentration of power amongst middle-class, predominantly white men that we see right across the kind of British political landscape. Now, that's really interesting. So so a white, middle-class, middle-aged, well-off man perhaps is likely to be a participant, but also, from your survey, more likely to trust the other people who are participating. Much more likely to trust the people that are participating and to think that democracy is functioning well and in their interests. And that's actually a factor around income as well. So the people who think that government and democracy is functioning best are men from middle-class, well-educated backgrounds that earn over £60,000 a year. In fact, they are three times more likely to trust the government and the institutions around us than somebody who's earning a sort of living wage income around fifteen to £20,000 a year. So that's a really stark difference. 
And I would say to you, Roger, why, why does this matter? Why should we care about this? Well, in the midst of a pandemic, the evidence is really clear that when you have low levels of trust, you have low expectations of rules being followed and you're more likely to think that other people are going to disobey them. So in a pandemic, you start to see that breakdown of trust when it comes to following new rules and regulations about the pandemic and public health, for example. Yeah, I mean, that does sound really critical, especially at a phase now where everybody's contribution makes a difference. What is the solution to this then? If you've only got a small part of the population who have trusted politicians and who take part in the democratic process, that could have really big implications on the way the country works. It could. And I would love to um, be on the radio today saying, well, we've cracked it. Here's how we can instantly <laughs> resolve, you know, decades long levels of distrust in politicians. And as I said right at the start, I'm not aspiring for everybody to love their leaders and to place, place all their faith in democratic institutions. I just want it to be a bit higher and a bit more equal in how it's distributed. And a key part of that for me, and you might think this is small, but I do think it's crucial, is ensuring that we have diverse representation uh, across our parliaments and in our institutions. So you can't be what you can't see. If people can't see people in their national parliament that look like and sound like them, that look like they act in their interests, they're less likely to want to participate. So a big part of our work at the John Smith Centre is about trying to keep this belief that politics is actually a force for good alive, ensuring that young people feel like that's one of a number of different ways they can set out to make the world a better place. And we do that through paid, structured internships that break down those barriers that so many people face access in public life. But Kezia, I mean, if I were listening to this, um, I suppose not being involved in the process, I might say, well, it's obvious why people don't trust politicians. They tell lies. They don't do what they say they're going to do. In the end, it comes down to delivery and honesty. I mean, isn't that the simple answer? There is an element of that, but there is also um, optimism. And the optimism is held amongst young people in particular. So... The studies that we've produced show that young people are less likely to see politicians as self-serving or indeed less likely to view politics as a waste of time. So I take that as quite a, a great deal of encouragement, actually, about the future. But we have to harness that potential. Now, it's not all about people going into elected life. It's not all about encouraging young people to go and work as parliamentary researchers. Actually, what we want to see is people setting out into all those different aspects of public service, the police and teaching and working for charities and NGOs, but believing in public service as this really positive vocation to make the world a better place. And that's the thing that we've got to build trust in and enhance as a really good way to make the world in the, in the way that you want it to be. Uh, and Kezia, you have a unique insight into this, given that you used to be the leader of <laughs> Labour in the Scottish Parliament. Uh, given your career in politics, di did you find that trust was an issue that made your job harder? No, I wouldn't say that I, I faced that um, directly. But then, you know, I spent um, eight years in the Scottish Parliament and, and 12 years in total around Scottish politics being um, in opposition and arguing against government decisions. So you know, I was far less likely to experience distrust than somebody who was actually taking those decisions. And on occasions, no doubt, um, I probably provoked more distrust by questioning the motives of those decision makers. And part of that is, you know, natural political discourse. You see it all the time. You're going to have Labour politicians today uh, criticising the government's response to the pandemic. That's all part of a healthy discourse. And, you know, I'm sure I could have behaved better on occasions as well, but... 
looking back on it now, I think what we really need to do as a country is commit ourselves to disagree better. So we want um, high, intense political debate. We want different views to be aired. But we want to do it in a respectful, tolerant manner that uh, allows that standard of debate to rise rather than be debased. And that's about believing in facts, believing in evidence, hearing from experts again. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? So I think we all have a duty to raise the standards of public debate. And what will flow from that is rising standards of trust. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.